Amen. First uh, Samuel. Um, we're going to be in in little passages in the first four chapters. The first one, one verse in chapter one, and then um, a section of chapter uh, two, a couple sections of chapter two, actually, and then. Um, And then a few sections of, uh, a small section in chapter 3 and then some of chapter 4. So just as we look at um, God's preparation to bring David uh, into into the scene. So um, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible reveals God. And we, we see his character, his nature, his person. And one of the things that the Bible very clearly sets forth about our Father is that he is a finisher. He does not start something and then abandon uh, that something and not bring it to a completion. But everything that he sets forth to do, um, he does. Another thing that we learn about God is that he is exceedingly patient and that he is in no hurry uh, to accomplish the things that he sets forth to do, but that he'll take as much time as he absolutely needs, um, even when um, those plans involve people and, and the alignment of their will with his plan. God is exceedingly patient, and he's slow to anger, uh, which means that he doesn't change course uh, very readily. There's a verse in the book of Romans that says that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And what that means is that when God uh, gives a gift or a calling and he puts that in someone's life or if he puts that on a nation or whatever it is that he puts uh, that upon, that he doesn't change his mind. but He, he brings it to uh, its completion. And that um, is, is in some ways a very scary truth. And it's scary because um, sometimes a, a man or, or even a nation or any a church can think that because God hasn't intervened in judgment, that that must mean that he accepts the behavior of the actions. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it's that he's patient and that he's without repentance. So it's scary because it means that we can be in a completely wrong place with God, and yet because he's not um, disciplining us or punishing the, the sin, we can think that he's okay with what we're doing. And that's not the case. And so it's scary, but it's also comforting because it means that when we're uh, not where we should be, and we know we're not where we should be, but our desire in our heart is to be where we should be, that God is very patient with us and he doesn't quickly just cast off and change his mind, you know. But the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And thus he's patient and he's a finisher. He finishes what it is that he set forth to do. And so we see the nation of Israel which was uh, the, the entity through which God was working in the world throughout the Old Testament times. And we see that Israel, where we are here in 1 Samuel, is in a time of transition, of great transition. They are floundering because of a period of self-rule. When Moses and Joshua, who brought the people into the promised land, faded off the scene, there was no leader that was a successor of Joshua. When Joshua died, there was no captain. There was no longer uh, someone who was the chief or a king or anything of that nature. But Joshua essentially left them um, into the hands of God. His final departing charge to the people was, Choose you this day whom you will serve, 
whether it be the Lord or whether it be some idol or Baal or yourselves or anything else. And he says, but as for me and my house, the choice that I am making, he said, we will serve the Lord. That was his charge. And so the people essentially were thrust forward uh, at the death of Joshua into a period of self-rule where they had the uh, choice to submit and obey God or they could go their own way. And for a while they chose God, but as the generations came and went, um, the, the, by, the, the overarching tide was to move away from God. And so after 400 years of the period of the judges, the people were in an extremely sorry condition. They were not walking with God, and they weren't experiencing the blessing of God that he uh, intended for them in the whole thing. And so it's a time of transition wherein God is going to bring an end uh, to that system of self-rule and he's going to now bring them into a period that's called a monarchy wherein they are ruled by uh, kings, where they will in fact have a ruler. Now, uh, anytime you're looking at the Bible, um, there, there's three ways to look at it. You can look at it from the bird's eye view, which is uh, way zoomed out and you're looking at the big picture of things. Uh, also, there's man's eye view, which is a much closer, more specific look at, at, at the things that are going on. Um, and you can see a lot more detail at the man's view or man's eye level. Um, but then there's the worm's view, which is like you're really getting into the intricate uh, details of the things that are going on in individual uh, things and whatnot. And, uh, you know, all three of those things will always come into alignment. There'll never be a contradiction between the three, but you see different perspectives, you know, from where you're standing. So the big picture view of what God is doing at this point is that he's establishing the period of the monarchy. And so he's establishing in this period the Davidic lineage, or that is uh, the, the, the line of David in the tribe of Judah that will ultimately bring forth Christ. Uh, the, the second thing that God's doing in the big picture or, or, or bird's eye view of things is that he's going to establish Jerusalem uh, as the city of David or the city of God, uh, the place where the temple will be built, the epicenter um, of what represents him. God is going to do that during the, the period of the kings. And then God's third purpose during this section of history is to fulfill the ministry of the prophets. It will be during the reigns of the kings, again, a span of about 400 years, that the majority of the prophets that will come on the scene and reveal what would become scripture, that they will fulfill their ministry. And so God's big picture purpose for the period of the kings, uh, among many other things, is to establish uh, the, the lineage of David through whom Christ will come to uh, establish Jerusalem as the city wherein God's name is written eternally, and then to fulfill the ministry of the prophets and the establishing of Old Testament truth, and thus making all things ready for the coming of Christ, the coming of his son. That's the bird's eye view of the kings. The man's eye view, or the smaller picture plan of God, where we are right now in our study, is that God is setting the scene and the stage for David's reign as the king. And as I shared with you last week, there's three things, essentially, that God is doing right now. Number one is he's raising up a prophet, Samuel, whom we looked at in chapter one and how God brought that to pass uh, through working in Hannah and all, all of what he did to bring Samuel onto the scene. He needs a stable judge, a stable ruler, someone who will represent him uh, consistently and rightly um, that will be a... a, a um, a non-political entity that will be God's hands and feet during this time. And God needs that. So God raising up a prophet. Secondly, during this time, God needs a system to die. 
The current status quo at the end of the period of the judges or the spiritual order of things needs to die in order for God to raise up what he wants to raise up through David and then through the monarchy period. And, and so the, 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 final, um, the final traces of that degenerated system have to die. And that's also taking place during these early chapters of Samuel. We'll look at that today. And then the third thing that God needs in order to set David forward is that he needs a kingmaker. Um, because if God wants a king that's after his heart, then God has an incredible work that he has to do within the heart of any person that's going to carry that kind of responsibility. And it takes a very special tool in order to bring one of those forward. Uh, and so God will raise up a King Saul, which is a kingmaker, in order, in order to uh, uh, forge and fashion the heart of David into what it needs to be. And so God is working in the smaller picture plan now in order to bring David onto the scene in this way. And so today, as we look at these uh, passages in these early chapters of Samuel, we see the death of the old order of things, and, and, it, and it has an incredible parallel uh, to the days that we're living in right now. Um, to understand the ways of God, and, and for all of us that are sitting here today, we live in a world, uh, we, we um, live in a world that has a set of very complicated circumstances, and we know that God has a plan, a big picture plan and a small picture plan for the days in which we live. And the things that we see God doing in this period of transition are incredibly applicable uh, to the days that we're living in right now. And so this introduces to us uh, the ways and the whys of God as it relates to his work within the world. And so uh, the system, this current status quo uh, of things is about to die. So what is it? What is the system uh, that had been established in the days leading up to um, uh, uh, David that started in the days of Joshua? What were they? If you look with me at chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us just a couple of things, a quick snapshot of what the current system was like that, that is about to die. And it says that this man, speaking again of Elkanah, who we looked at last week, went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is not Jerusalem, where the temple will ultimately be built. Shiloh is probably some 40 miles from Jerusalem, way up in the northern part of the tribe of Ephraim. And, uh, you know, kind of if you're picturing uh, uh, Israel in your mind, what it looks like, it's pretty much dead center in the middle of the nation um, between, if you picture the Sea of Galilee and then the Dead Sea, right between the two, smack dab in just a little bit from the Jordan River. That's where Shiloh was. And that is where Joshua, way back in Joshua chapter 18, set up the tabernacle, that the, the mobile tent where they would worship. That was in Shiloh, and it had been in Shiloh all the way throughout the period of the judges. And that's something that's going to change. God is ultimately going to set up his, his place in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is going to be built. But where things are right now, worship, the center of worship in Israel, is up in the area of Shiloh. Secondarily, we see in this verse... It says, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. 
And so we see that the, the spiritual eldership or the spiritual leadership of the nation is held by, first of all, the high priest, whose name was Eli at this time. Now, the high priest was a descendant of Aaron and had to be. And we see that his two sons were more or less uh, the assistant priests or those that kind of held the right hand and the left hand positions to this man, uh, Eli. And so uh, the center is in Shiloh. The leaders are Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we see concerning Eli also there um, uh, in, in the chapter. It's not in verse 3, but we see it over in verse 9 of chapter 1. It tells us that Eli the priest was sitting upon a seat by a post in the temple of the Lord. And, and it gives to us the very early indication of what the spiritual condition of this man Eli was. That every time we see Eli, he's either sitting or lying down. Uh, and it's a symbol to us of the condition of the ministry, that it had gone stagnant. There's an idleness in Eli, and we'll see that very clearly unfold throughout these passages. Well, we're told of the character of these men. What kind of men were these leaders, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas? Look over at chapter 2, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 12, it tells us what kind of men we're dealing with in the ministry here and where Israel was at spiritually. It says, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. That means sons of Satan, sons of the devil, not good men, darkness. And it says that they knew not the Lord. So what you have here is you have people serving in the ministry that aren't even saved. You have people here that have basically inherited uh, these positions or taken them on as jobs or careers or inherited the family business. Um, but there's no real work of God going on in their lives at all. These men that are called to represent God, they don't even know God. You can't represent God if you don't know God. <laughs> and yet that was uh, the, the representation that the people were receiving in those days. They didn't even know the Lord. And it says in verse 13 that, that you know, it's going to describe the behavior that this brought forth. It says, now the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was boiling and with a flesh hook of three teeth, a big, big old fork uh, in his hand, he would strike it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest would take for himself. So they in Shiloh, or did they in Shiloh, unto all Israelites that came thither. So um, basically, when, when a person would offer sacrifice to the Lord, um, what they were doing is that they were essentially bringing and, and sharing a meal with God. They would bring their, uh, their, their animal, it would be sacrificed by the priest, then it would be cooked, and a portion of that meat, whatever was on the flesh hook, would be given to the priest. That was their provision. It was how they ate. It was how God provided for them. And so they were entitled to a section of that. The rest of that sacrifice would be returned to the worshiper to eat with their family. And the fat and all these other parts would be burned up and they would be offered to the Lord. And so it was a, a picture of fellowshipping with God. You were fellowshipping, having a meal with God and the whole thing. And that's the way the priests would get their portion. They would stick the fork in. They would hope for the loin and take what they got. <laughs> you know, if they would get the, you know, the shin bone and that was what they got, you know, whatever. But uh, they, it was kind of like the luck of the draw. What does God have for us today? But. That's not the way the sons of Eli were doing it. It says in verse 15, it says, Also, 
before they burnt the fat, which was to be exclusively the Lord's, uh, God, good dietitian. If you want to know how to eat, look at God's word. You know, <laughs> don't eat the animal fat. Give that to God. Burn it off. You know, it says tastes good, not good for you. Anyways, it says before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh or boiled flesh from you, but raw. In other words, we want to choose the cuts we want. We want it before it goes into the pot. Give us what we're asking for. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as your soul desires, then he, that is the servant, would answer him, nay, but you will give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. So that means that the people had a desire to do things the right way. This is this part is God's. This is not yours. This belongs to God. I'm offering this to God. And they're saying, oh, yeah, really? Well, if you want to make something of it, <laughs> we could do that. Or just give us what we're asking for. And so the result of that, verse 17, it says, Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. And here's why. For men abhorred or hated the offering of the Lord. Because of the corruption that was in the ministry in these days leading up to Samuel and David, it caused people to hate coming to church. They despised uh, the worship of the Lord because they were being ripped off in the process and God was being represented to them as a tyrant. And God hated that. He hates it when the ministry rips off people and when the ministry makes merchandise of people. Uh, and it's all about a marketing plan and how uh, all of that goes down. Now, when I say those words, I know for me and probably for you too, you can't help but get a picture of some of the things that go on in the ministry and in the church today, isn't it? Um, you know, I remember a quote that was given by um, a man who, who's a former chaplain to the U.S. Senate. His name was Dick Halverston. He was, the, he was back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And he said these words. He said, the church started as a fellowship of believers in Jerusalem uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was just a fellowship around his lordship. He said, but then the church moved uh, to Greece where it became an institution, and then he said, from there, the church moved to Europe, where it became uh, a culture. Or no, uh, it moved to Rome, where it became um, Greece was, okay. Then it moved to Europe, and it became a culture. And then it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. And basically, the point of his quote was, is that everywhere that the church has gone, you know, the church has made an impact, not, not taking anything away from that, but that the church has also been influenced by the culture that it was in. And that's kind of something that just happens. And because our country is, you know, so heavily um, centered on the free enterprise system of things, it's no surprise or wonder uh, that the church would go that way. And so we see that in our day, don't we? We see that the church uh, makes merchandise of people, and it's become an enterprise. It's run oftentimes like an enterprise. Uh, its, its principles and um, governance is, is very much modeled after an enterprise and all the rest. And uh, when it becomes that, it is displeasing to the Lord. It says that the sin of the young man was very great 
because people abhorred um, the offering of the Lord because of the misrepresentation and the corruption uh, that were that was in the ministry. And so the condition of the character of Eli's sons is that they didn't know the Lord and it was reflected in the spiritual atmosphere uh, in, in the, 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 the area. The condition of Eli, turn, look at, with your eyes over to verse 22. Skip down to 22. <clears throat> Concerning Eli. It says this, it says, now Eli was very old. Now he again is the head of this system. And it tells us that he was very old and the system was very old. And he heard all that his sons did unto all of Israel. So this man was aware of the corruption and he knew that it was wrong. And, and we didn't get this before, but we get it now, how they laid with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So not only was there uh, a covetousness wherein they were in it for the riches, but they were also committing adultery with the women that were hanging around in the spiritual things. And Eli knew about it. And so it says in verse 23 that he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. And if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, it says, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father. And here's why they hearkened not. Because the Lord would slay them. Now, this isn't the fault of the young man, nor is the purpose of this passage to highlight the fault of the young man. That was already done back over in the previous passage. What this does is it highlights the fault of Eli and of, how, of where the system had gone, how far it had fallen. Is that this man who knew what was right, who was not himself guilty of the sins of his sons, found himself in a weakened condition where he had the power to recognize the evil and he had the power to speak against the evil, but he did nothing about it. Now, what Eli should have done is he should have removed his sons from the ministry. He had the, the power and the authority to do that. But he didn't have the moral authority or the strength to do it. And he didn't do it. He didn't stand courageously upon the principles that he knew was best. And he let something slide that he should have and had the power to get rid of. And so he is at fault in this thing. And so... <clears throat> Um, it says that the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also now with uh, men. So he seems, um, this, this man, um, to, to do this. Now, in verses 27 through 30, God gives a warning unto Eli and, and because of this thing. It says that the Lord, or there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord. Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when you were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to represent me, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Why then? Do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering? Now, isn't it amazing that God is holding Eli accountable for the sins of his sons because Eli didn't exercise the power to remove them from their office? Which I have commanded in my habitation, and you honor your sons above me 
to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and your fa- the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, be it far from me, for them that honor me will I honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That's a verse that should be highlighted in every Bible, by the way, because that's as true today as it was in those days. Those that honor me, I will honor, but those that despise me, that is, they turn their back on me, they will be lightly esteemed. Uh, God honors those that honor him. When we honor God's word, with our, not just with our behavior, but with our authority and in the, the places we have authority, then God honors those positions and stances that we take. But if we turn our back on him, then we can't expect his blessing or his covering upon our life. And so God says, behold, the days come that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, that there shall not be an old man in your house. And then he goes on to establish one. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that Eli doesn't argue with this. He doesn't argue with the, these words. He knows that he's guilty, guilty of it. And so the condition of Eli is that he has run his course, he's been warned of his coming removal, and he seems to understand it, and he knows that the coming order of things is going to be to a close. Now, in chapter 3, we get the condition amongst the people. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It's going to tell us what things were like now, not in the leadership, but just in the people, just in, in society. It says that the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. The word precious means rare. When something is uh, precious, usually it's because there's not a whole lot of it in circulation. I mean, we don't consider grass to be something that's very precious. And the reason is because you can get as much grass as you want. Just go outside and take a handful of it, uh, and you know you can just eat it or throw it away, whatever you want, and you can just get more. Gold, on the other hand, extremely precious. Why? Because you can't get it. You can't. Yeah, you can't just go out and, and grab it. You know, there is a certain amount and that's it. So when he says that the word of the Lord was precious in those days, what he's saying is that the word of God was extremely rare. So you didn't, in Israel, uh, expect very often that you were going to get a Bible study when you went to the tabernacle or when you went to the place of meeting. And you didn't often run into a prophet, someone who was in tune with the Spirit of God that would speak into your life the things of God. It was very rare in those days for a man to hear from God. That was the spiritual condition of the time. 400 years of apostasy will do that. And that's exactly where they find themselves. And so it says there was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place. Now that is physical, but that is also spiritual. Eli is very much laid down in his place. And his eyes began to wax dim. Now that is physical, but that is also spiritual. The man who is supposed to be seeing for God can no longer see. His vision is uh, expiring and he has, they're very dim. He cannot see things clearly the way that he is called to, uh, to represent God rightly. It says his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. So interesting, it says there was no open vision, right? As it is with the leader, so will it be with the people. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. Attitude reflects leadership. Always true. And if it's dead in the leadership, it's going to be dead in the people. 
And it says in verse 3, And before the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord. Now that's speaking, of course, literally of an evening, but it's speaking spiritually of the condition of Israel at that time, that the light of God was just about out. Things had gotten to the very lowest place and the lamp of God in the presence of God was almost completely expired in the place where the ark of God was and it says that Samuel was laid down to sleep. And, uh, and so what we see here is we see the condition of the nation. It was a very dark time. It was a very dull time. It was a, a time that was void of revelation of God. The word of the Lord was precious and the people's heart uh, was cooled and far from God and very much uh, asleep in the middle of all, all of this. And so we see the condition. The condition is that things are bad. The, the nation is on life support, as it were, and now they're going to die. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 brings to us now the death of this old order of things. And I don't want to um, actually read all of these verses, but I want to point out, uh, just for time's sake, um, some of them. Just the first two verses. It says that the word of the Lord, or the word of Samuel, came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. And so the, the army, the, the enemies of the nation have entrenched themselves against them. And it says they pitched besides Ebenezer and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And so, uh, and just one more verse, it says, And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hands of our enemies. So using the ark just as a relic, you know, this whole thing. But what we see here is that we see, first of all, the nation falling before her enemies. Uh, in this place now, in time when they're about to die. And then it says in verse 11, they bring the ark into, into the battle, the second round of the battle. And in verse 11 of chapter 4, actually look at verse 10. It says that the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten again. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And then in verse 11, and the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were smitten. And so we see that the ark was taken. Now the ark represented the very presence of God among his people. The ark would always go out before the people whenever they would move or whenever they would go into battle. And now we see that the glory of Israel, the presence of God, the mercy seat is taken by the enemies of God and its glory, which is God. God said, I will be the glory of that nation. The glory of God is now departed from Israel. And it tells us there also that the priests were slain. God removed the leadership. When man wouldn't do it, God stepped in and God did. God took him out. And so Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, are removed. Now look at verse 13. Look at Eli. And it says that when he came, <clears throat> this, this messenger, he said, Lo, Eli sat upon a seat, again, Eli sitting, by the wayside. So he's on the sidelines. He's not in the field. He's not in the game. He's on the sidelines. And he's watching 
for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the old man came into the city, or sorry, when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, what means the noise of this storm? And the man came in quickly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old. And his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Again, same picture of the same man. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army. And I fled today out of the army and, and said, What is there done, my son? Or he said, What is there done? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines. Sorry. Shut up. Thank you. And he has, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And so the messenger, the message is now confirmed to Eli, and it says, and it came to pass that when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck broke, and he died, for he was an old man, and heavy. Now get the full picture in your mind. Eli represents the system of the time. He was old. He was heavy. He was blind. He was watching on the sideline, not engaged in the battle. And it came to a point where when the ark was taken, the head was separated from the body. That's what the neck does. The neck keeps the head on the body. And when he fell off the chair, the neck break. There was a separation of the head from the body. You see the picture. What does the Bible say? It says that Christ is the head of the church, that we are his body. And we see that this system in this day had grown so fat and so corrupt and so dead that God removed the head from the body, as it were. He broke the connection uh, between the two things and the system uh, now has died. And then notice down in verse 21, one of the daughters, or I'm sorry, one of the wives of Hophni and Phinehas, who was pregnant and who then gave birth, it says in verse 20 that about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said to her, Fear not, for you have a son. And she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. And so the name of this son, of this priest, represents exactly what has just taken place in Israel. The system that was has come crashing down and has died. And the glory of God has departed from the nation, uh, as it were. The glory has departed. Now, this is exactly what needed to happen at this time in Israel's history in order for God to bring forth what he was about to do next. Jesus said in the Gospels, he said that you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. Neither can you sew a new piece of fabric onto an old garment. And the reason for both of those things is the same. If you put new wine into old wineskins, old wineskins have already been stretched out. They're dried and they're no longer uh, um, flexible. And the expansion of the new wine when the gases and the fermentation happens will burst the bottles because they can no longer stretch. 
So new wine must go into fresh young skins so that when the wine expands, the skins can expand with them and the two kind of move together. There's a harmony between the container and the substance. Same with the garment. If you take new cloth that's never shrunk and you sew it together with old cloth that already has, that when the new cloth shrinks after it's been sewn onto the old, it will tear away from the old. You have to use like things. They have to go together. And Jesus said that would happen. Now, why did, was Jesus into wine? And was Jesus into, you know, was he a seamstress on the side? You know, like, you know, what was it there? No, he was talking about the moving of God. Is that if God is going to do something new, if God is going to pour out new wine, as it were, upon the world or upon a, a church or upon a nation, then he's not going to do that into an old system. He's not, God's not going to take this old fat system of, of Eli and heal him and heal a 98-year-old man who has grown corrupt. And, and, and all. No, he's going to kill it and he's going to start over. He's going to start with something new. And we see God do this all throughout from Genesis to Revelation. He doesn't revive the old system. He lets it run its course and then he'll bring up something new. Uh, someone one time drew, drew the parallel this way, just looking at the scripture and, and also uh, throughout history, things that aren't recorded in scripture, that oftentimes when God is going to move in a particular place or in a particular way, he'll start with a man, someone like an Abraham or someone like a Jacob or someone like a David or a Samuel or a Paul, you know, or one of the apostles. And he'll start with a man and God will get a hold of that life. And that man's life will be completely consecrated unto God and, and, and he'll be set in a place where God can then use that man. It could be a woman too. There were times in the Bible when it was uh, a, a woman, when God couldn't find a man or if God wanted to use a woman, needed one at that time. You know, and, he, and there were times that he did. But God will start there and he'll, and he'll pour into that man. And from that, he'll, he'll bring forth a movement. The stability of that person will bring forth something that God can do and it will affect a whole multitude of people, sometimes an entire generation or an entire nation. And, and so the man used of God begins a movement. But over time, that movement, as it begins to run its course and things begin to develop and time passes by, the movement turns into, slowly, a monument. And now it's just something of, like, look what we have done. Look what we have here. Look at our capital. Look at our budget. Look at our buildings. Look at the expanse of how far this thing has gone. And books are written and, and you know, monuments are erected and, and, and things are, are, are set up to, to celebrate what God did through the man and then the movement. It's a monument. But then as the monument begins to take the center stage and God takes a back seat, the thing will naturally begin to die. And what was a monument soon becomes a museum. And you begin to look at things and you say, well, remember when? You remember what it was like back in the days? Remember it was like when God poured out his spirit and people were getting saved and the church was full and there was things going on every night of the week? And, and there was new songs being written and people were on fire and, 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 and things, were, things were cooking. Remember what it was like back then? We should write a book. We should put up the pictures and frame it. You know, and and the, mo the monument becomes a museum. And from there, it's only a short period of time before it becomes a mausoleum. Something that once was very much alive, 
something that very much was something, but now it has grown to a point where there's no life left in it at all. And God, the glory of God, has departed from it. The whole thing is Ichabod, and all you have left is the form of something that once was, but no longer is. And it has been happening since the very beginning of the history of God. It's a funny thing that happens uh, as generation folds into a new generation. You know, you just look at what happened with Abraham. Abraham, a man who loved God, and God called him out. And and Abraham's life was was characterized by nothing but the altar and the well. That's it. He he loved God. (laughs) He loved God. And and, and so, I'm sorry, not the altar, uh, the altar and the tent. The altar was his relationship with God, and the tent was his relationship with this world. And he just had no relationship with this world at all, and everything was God. You know what the outcome was? Prosperity. God greatly enriched him, gave him sheeps and flocks, and used his life and made him fruitful. But then a second generation came, Isaac. And when you read about Isaac, all you read about is the, is the wells that he dug. Barely the mentioning of an altar at all. Just He was a well digger. Hey, there's sheep. When you got sheep, you need wells. If you want sheep, got to have wells. Just dig wells, dig wells, dig wells, dig wells. Constant strife. Not much of his life. By the time Jacob comes around, the third generation, he sees sheep. He see, hears about Abraham. He wants gold and silver, what everyone else has. Forget the wells. That was too slow. Let's have programs. We'll put speckled sheep with spotted sheep. We'll put birch in front of the here. And if we do this just right, they say that these sheep will produce more. And we can really milk this thing. And we can cook, cook this and, and you know put a hothouse kind of greenhouse thing. And we can really make this big. It's just programs. See how things happen? Things change from generation to generation to generation? It can happen. It happens. And it comes to a point where God says, time to scrap it. I'm going to raise someone up. The Lord sought for a man, it says. He wants to start over. So what is God looking for now that all of this has come to pass? What is God looking for? And this is where I want you to really pay attention as we land the plane here. What is God looking for as a foundation for what he wants to do next in the days when things are crashing? He is looking, first of all, for someone who is wholly dedicated to God and to his glory. That was the whole reason why God raised up Hannah the way that he did. And the, what, and, the, and the reason why God brought Samuel forth the way God brought Samuel forth, because he was looking for someone whose heart was completely dedicated towards him. And that's what God found in Samuel. God also wants, he's also looking for someone who will learn to hear God's voice and who will listen to God's voice. Now, we skipped over it, but if you go back and read chapter 3, what took place in chapter 3. You'll see God raising up Samuel as a man who knows how to hear his voice. It's that classic passage of when Samuel hears the voice in the evening and doesn't know what it is, and three times he goes and asks. And eventually Eli says, hey, next time you hear that, ask God. Say, God, what do you want me to do? And through that whole process, Samuel learned how to hear God's voice. And God is looking for someone who not only is dedicated to him, but someone who's committed to learning how to hear his voice, to develop that acute sensitivity to what it is that his spirit is whispering in the ear and someone that will not only hear it, but will heed it. 
And that's number three. God is looking for someone with the courage to say and do hard things when necessary. The message, the first message that God gave to Samuel was to go and tell Eli that he was done. Can you imagine having to go in and tell your boss, who also is kind of your father, and you have to go in and say, hey, the message from God was, you're done. And as a little child, imagine how difficult that is to go and stand before someone with that kind of presence and to say those words. But he did it. Because God gave him the charge and the command. And God is looking for people that will stand up, say the hard thing, and do the hard thing when they're directed of him to do it. The fourth thing that God is looking for when he wants to start again is he's looking for someone who will stand completely upon the word of God. To stand completely upon the word of God. In chapter 3, just look at it. It's just two verses, three verses. Uh, chapter 3, verses, verse 19. It says that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Do you see that? That the means by which Samuel came into the relationship with God that he did was by the word of the Lord. There are far too many Christians in our day that have forsaken the word of the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said that in the last days, men will depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. He said again to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That is sound teaching, speaking of the word of God. But instead they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll find teachers that will say what they want to hear and they'll fall into perdition. And so we see it happening in our day. I was talking with my wife last night and we were talking about just the, the multitude of people that are falling by the wayside in the days. It's not a day that goes by that there isn't a phone call or a report of a marriage giving in or of someone uh, just flipping their lid or of someone uh, that has checked themselves into a psych ward. Or I mean, it is daily that these things are happening um, these days. And and the root of it, especially as it concerns a Christian, and, and these are Christians that I'm talking about, not non-Christians. The root of it is a lack of the steady intake of the word of God. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Because the word of God gives you a foundation to stand on that doesn't break when the winds and the storms come. The word of God gives a foundation of truth that causes and keeps freedom. And when a Christian departs from the word of God, they're on the fast track to destruction and of not knowing the Lord. Why do Christians depart from the word of God? I'll tell you why. Hands down for now. Here's the reason why. Why? Because oftentimes there's no immediate effect 
of, of things. You know, you read the Bible, you read a chapter of the Bible, and you think, well, I just read a chapter of the Bible, and I'm none, none the better for it. Nothing happened. No angel sang. I didn't, you know, not, there was no, like, great revelation. I'm kind of dried up in my house. You know, so what's the point? I'll just, you know, I, I don't need to do this so much. I'll get it in church. I'll listen to the bridge, you know, or something else, but it's not that important. Here's, here's why that's an error. Because what happens when you read the Bible and you let the Bible in and you study it and meditate on the scriptures, what happens is it's like a river that is that is flowing through your life. It's a river that's flowing through your heart. And when you just look at it, it just looks like clear water. But if you could see with a microscope, what you would see is that there's sediment of substance in that water. And as that water passes over your life, it is dropping that sediment into your heart. Little by little, like a delta forms at the base of a river. You can't see it happening. It's imperceptible. But it's building nevertheless. And over time, the thickness of that delta grows to a point where there's stability and substance in the life. Where the knowledge of God is real. The truth of God is there. There's a true foundation. And it's a lasting foundation. And it's a good foundation. And if we neglect the word of God then in the time when that substance and foundation is necessary, it's not there. We need the word. And God is looking for people that will continue in his word in times of transition. And then number five, God is looking for someone who will be consistent in their example, in their representation of God before the people. He's looking for someone that will last. That from the beginning of their life or their calling, all the way until the end, they will be a consistent example and representation of God within the world. God told the prophet Asa, or, or, or told Asa the king through the prophet, he said, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone. He's looking all the time for someone whose heart is perfect towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. But he's looking for a certain type of someone. And he wants to do a new work. The Lord sought for a man. And in our day, we see a total breakdown of things. And we see the word of God is rare, rarer and rarer. We see the ministry being used as a platform for ego, platform for enrichment of self, for fame. We see that those in the know, that know better, are sitting by the sidelines and we see that the Philistines are in the wings, holding their ground. And the church sits by the sidelines, the leaders sit by the sidelines, and they say nothing, and they do nothing in the trench of political correctness. And the Lord in these days is looking for young men like Samuel, who will be dedicated their whole life to the purposes of God and be unmixed and unpolluted by the world that will learn to hear his voice and listen with a readiness to obey, that will have the courage to stand up and stand upon his word, and that will be an example for Christ among the people. God is looking in these days for fathers and men that will hold up and disciple and pray for the next generation and do everything that we can to prop them up upon our shoulders. If the Lord tarries, what's the world going to look like in another five years? or another 10 years, or another 15 years. I don't know what it's going to look like. But what I see that we are very much in times of transition, even now in the days that we live in. When Esther was in Persia in a very perilous time, 
There was an opportunity that was before her to stand for God or to preserve herself. And her uncle, who was her mentor, and also the, the open door that she had to be in the place that she was, gave to her some of the most significant words that will ever be said to a human being. He said, listen, you may die, and you might lose everything for the call that God has placed upon your life in this season. And if you, if you choose, you don't have to go. But what if God has raised you up and put you here for such a time as this? And that same word applies to every one of us today in the world that we live in. What if God has put you here for such a time as this? If you don't want to go, you don't have to go. If you don't want to be, you don't have to be. But we have the call and the opportunity to be seen by the eyes of the Lord as those whose hearts are complete. He doesn't say that we would be perfect, but that our hearts would be perfectly set towards him, that he would show himself strong on our behalf. Would that he would give us a call and a vision and an awakening, and a filling, and a baptism, and a heart, and a message, and a door. And that we would be willing in the day of his power. Amen.